0: To build change, you have to start with your why. Why do you care for the change? What does it matter to you personally? You need to connect with your passion. You want to talk about an ownership society, we should say,
1: what is your problem? What is that thing you will bleed for, the hill you will die on?
0: Because passion is what will sustain you through the ups and downs all along the way.
2: I learned that it was possible to sit in a conference room and say, why aren't we immunizing every child on the planet? (laughs) That's that's just wrong. Yes. (laughs) Tell me how you'd fix it. And... I don't think a lot of people ask such simple yet totally transformational and bold questions Questions. and then stick with it for decades until it gets done. This is the Positive Leadership Podcast.
0: I'm Jean-Philippe Courtois, JP. In this episode, I will be drawing on my experience as a member of the senior executive leadership team here at Microsoft to find out how you can connect with your personal purpose. And how you can use that to have a positive impact on your town, your community, your loved ones, and maybe even to the world. And we'll be hearing from some of the incredible guests I've been speaking to over the past 12 months. Paul Pullman, former CEO of Unilever, will be sharing his tips on how to manage opposition from stakeholders. In the financial markets.
3: You know, leaders work on the forest, not in the forest. And for our organization to take the right actions for the longer term, I felt it was terribly important to stop quarterly reporting to move our compensation plan to a, a long-term plan. So make sure
0: you stay with us. But first, the big thanks to all of you who've been in touch. I read all the comments you post that come in. So please do take the time to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or send in the comment or question via LinkedIn. It's something I find incredibly useful. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating.
1: I should tell you that my mother was a French teacher, um, and and my name means, as you know, "dear" in French. So (laughs) thank you so much for having me. I feel like we're old friends already.
0: Cheryl Dorsey is a trailblazing social entrepreneur who spent over 20 years fighting racism and putting forward sustainable solutions for an equitable future. I had the chance to meet with her at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos earlier this year, and she explained how she found her Way back in the early
1: 90s. Many ways, social innovation is what is that problem that you cannot turn away from? And for me, it was looking at women who could have been my sister, my cousin, my best friend, and thinking of what might it mean to have to bury your baby. In the early 90s, as you mentioned, I was in uh, medical school in Boston at Harvard Medical School. And there was a seminal article in our um, paper of note, the Boston Globe, Mm -hmm called Birth in the Death Zones, Mm. that looked at the rate that black babies were dying in inner-city Boston relative to their white counterparts. And the rate was a three-to-one disparity. Three-to-one. Three-to-one, Jean-Philippe. And that's horrific and inequitable enough, Mm. but the fact that it was happening um, in the vicinity of some of the world's best medical facilities, Mass General Hospital, Brigham and Women's, New England Deaconess, seemed unconscionable to me.
0: In my case... My why is very clear. It came to me in August 2015, during a period that became the ultimate test in my life. My son, Gabriel, passed away. He left me and my family in deep despair and really broken. It was during that summer, at the end of a walk in the Alps, and we were all gather all together, the four of us, my wife, Pascal, my two daughters, Aurora and Roman, outside a chalet in the middle of the nature. We're sitting down on the grass, and the four of us were sitting there trying to find a horizon for family, to give ourselves a perspective, basically some hope for future individually, but also as a family. So we are all together talking about the most beautiful memories we had of Gabriel as a son and as a brother when one of his messages that he had sent to me came back to my mind. He said I have this vital desire to positively change the lives of others. That same day we decided to create our foundation, really for Good, to honor his values. And over the past few years, we had the opportunity to enable and unleash the potential of more than 300 young people to create their own social enterprise to have a positive impact on the world.
2: I learned from one of my colleagues about why people serve, because they want their lives to speak and how powerful that um, desire for purpose is and how beautiful that expression of human purpose can be.
0: So Dr. Rajiv Shah is president of the Rockefeller Philanthropic Foundation. He found his why
2: when he was in his teens. I actually grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, My parents are from India. And I had a chance when I was young to go back to India. And on one of those trips, my uncle said, you know, Uh, You and your sister, you've been here for a week. You've gone to all these places. Mm. I want to show you what the real India is like. (laughs) And he took us into a slum community outside of Mumbai called Vashi, near Vashi. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we spent half a day there. Mm. And I'm now 49 years old. I was 10 years old back then. Mm. I can close my eyes today and recreate the sights, the smells, (laughs) the sounds. I can see the children playing in open, raw sewage but playing and kicking balls and smiling. I can see the small huts with (laughs) televisions and radios with life, but also extreme poverty. And it was just a jarring experience. And I said, (laughs) why is it that some people are born in places where they would never even see this and others will spend their whole life in (laughs) this kind of a lifestyle. And it led to uh, other experiences down the line (laughs) uh, that, taught me that if you want to commit your career to helping people lead a better life, there are many avenues to do that.
0: Of course, not everyone has found their why. And I think it's a bit elusive for many people. They can beat themselves up about it if they have not found it.
4: You know, I don't have a purpose that sets the world on fire. What's wrong with me? Am I somehow dysfunctional? I'm like, I think you're probably normal and probably quite human about it. I'm not sure I have a why.
0: So if you're still looking for your why, don't worry. Coach Michael Bungestani recommends taking down one level.
4: So the the level I love to work at is a project-based level. And I say to myself, what's a worthy goal for you? What is a worthy goal? And how do we create the best possible worthy goal for you? For where you are now with the resources you have with the experience you have with the status you have and for me a worthy goal has three parts to it the first part is it thrilling like does it actually light you up do you actually care about it does it actually speak to you know your values whether you know your values or not <laughs> it's like does it actually speak to something in you that makes you go you know i'd love to do that that sounds pretty great But it needs to be more than just thrilling for you. It also needs to be important. It needs to serve a bigger game.
0: The question Michael wants us to focus on when setting our goal is, does it give more to the world
4: than it takes? So this is a sense of how does this get beyond just lighting you up, but actually contribute? And there's often an interesting tension between thrilling and important. They're in in battle with each other a little bit. And you're trying to find the the, the best possible tension. And then the third element is daunting. It's like, does this stretch you and grow you and keep you learning, take you out to the edge of your own sense of confidence and confidence and sense of what you know and sense of who you are? at Zafar trained to become a doctor in Pakistan, but after the
0: trauma of losing her first baby, and becoming pregnant again, she took a step back and made a decision she knew would really stretch her. She decided to set up an all-female health provider network that provides quality health in Pakistan to those in need using telemedicine. She told me about a night when the service really came into its own.
2: And I remember this is a night, one night before Eid, and there's a divorcee woman who calls up and who's suicidal. And uh, she had all those thoughts and she calls up and gets connected to a physician. And she's like, you know, tomorrow's 8 and it's COVID and just having such a bad time. And I think I'll just do it today. And, you know, the counselor kept on speaking to her, started to take, you know, information. And at the back end, we uh, started tracking and getting hold of one family member so that someone would be there just making sure that she wouldn't do it. And I think that one night, one online nurse, one online psychologist and just technology probably saved that person. So I think that's something that I always remember, that, you know, we were actually able to make a difference in some one person's life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, it's fantastic to think about all those touches you have and an impact you can have with just that one story, one life, but there are so many others I'm sure that you are touching through those <laughs> teleconsultations and, 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 and people um, you know, taking care of uh, all those communities. That's wonderful. Th- th- thank you so much for sharing. We can truly all make a difference in the world. Think about what you can do now, today. Don't worry about the big picture. Think small, then
4: dream big. And I think purpose, or your why, often emerges from you doing the work. And if you keep thinking to yourself, what's my worthy goal, and how do I work on that? My bet is when you look back on the worthy goals that you've taken on, you'll see clues to what your why would be if it's still important for you to have a why.
0: Hello everyone, uh, this is JP, and welcome back to the Positive Leadership Podcast. You know, this is where we explore where and how people and leaders really energize their teams so that it can have a really powerful impact in their work, in their lives as well. Today, what I'd like us to explore in a way is a very unique set of companies, so-called the B Corporation. B Lab is a nonprofit organization that certifies B Corporations. In the way Transfer so certifies Fair Trade, Trade Coffee. The B stands for benefit yes, and refers to benefiting philosophy. workers, the, the community, uh, and the environment. Uh, uh, the outdoorwear company Patagonia a, was the first California, California company to sign up for so B certification in, in January 2012. In, it's a company that I really admire for their dedication to fostering positive practices. Patagonia commits 1% of its total sales to environmental groups and has done so since the 1980s. Vincent Stanley is Patagonia's Director of Philosophy and a former Head of Sales and Marketing. He's been in Patagonia since the beginning, and he's a real hero of mine, and I was so excited to meet him.
5: When I started Patagonia, I really intended to stay for six months or eight months and uh, make some money and travel in Europe. I had no intention (laughs) of of working there for, for 48 years. But... I got engaged by this little company. I love this small culture of climbers and surfers, even though I wasn't a climber or surfer. And I loved uh, the enterprise.
0: You know, from the early days of this, uh, I would say, I think you called yourself a band of uh, climbers and surfers, (laughs) to Patagonia of 2021, what did it take for you and the company to find your meaning right and to define a meaning for all the people so that they they got committed excited and wanted to achieve more it's interesting i, I think that
5: uh, early on there were there were two strong characteristics of the culture one was a committed and pretty fearless owner yvon chenard and the second it's almost that uh, because we were so green, we were so young, we were so inexperienced, and we were so dumb, <laughs> that we uh, whenever we had to do something new, I had to hire a lot of sales reps, or we had to go to a trade show for the first time, or we had to uh, create a ski product, an area that we'd never worked in before, we would rely on each other. in mm-hmm. other words, nobody nobody would come in and say, "I'm the expert on this' yeah and we're going to do it my way. Everybody was an amateur, and mm-hmm. so we relied on each other to actually uh, develop the kinds of questions we needed to ask in order to get things done. And I think that permission to do that was there. Nobody mm-hmm. interfered with that process. Nobody came in and said, "You're all worker bees, and i'm the I'm <laughs> the queen bee or the king bee <laughs> And you're gonna do what I say. That that didn't happen. Uh, and and Wong, as an owner never operated that way. He used to hmm. say, I never come in and criticize anybody for what they've done. I only come in and criticize people for what they haven't done, for what they hmm. haven't, for a project they haven't started, et cetera. So what survived in the company, I think, is this strong sense of agency and volition. At the middle management level, yeah. that often acts as a corrective to uh, mistakes made by senior management. Now, mm-hmm. the, the problem senior management has is a 30,000 <laughs> foot view yeah. uh, without knowing the place, without knowing the locality. I'll give you an example. When I was the last time I was the head of marketing, yep. I made a yoga where uh, an international impaired you know, I, I said, okay, in October, I want every store window to have yoga clothes. And then somebody told me, you know what, in yoga doesn't mean anything in Japan. <laughs> 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 so it's that kind of thing that that, that management tends to do because yeah. you're looking at the big picture, that it needs it really needs to be bolstered by this by by what bubbles up from the bottom. And and what managers can do or what leaders can do, as you're, you're talking about, which is a little bit different from managing, is to almost understand the collective consciousness of the company, say, these are our strengths, these are our challenges, these are the, the limitations we put on ourselves. This is the story of the company. And it's not just a story of what we've become. It's the story that creates the possibilities for what we will become. It is our definition or our soul. And if, if the leader understands that, everybody else understands that. That's not just a vision that's coming out of one mind. That's a shared vision. And so what you want that point of view, you engage that part of every employee that also believes that story and also wants to help grow as a person. Um, uh, because they're doing something that's beyond sales or doing something beyond just the role they play. They're, they're creating a, a, an impact and hopefully an impact for good.
0: More and more people today want to see the companies they work for acting responsibly. But it was not always the case. 18 years ago, Vincent said, if you weren't about meeting even at somewhere like Patagonia, you would have noticed a kind of tension among the different groups.
5: There would have been uh, the go-getters, the salespeople and product people who are creating new things that we're trying to sell. You would have the bean counters who uh, uh, try to prevent uh, sales and marketing from gi- giving everything away. And then you have the tree huggers, uh, the people who are very passionate about both uh, supporting vulnerable activists through our grants program and minimizing our environmental impact through our business practices. And it was almost nobody ever won. I remember what it was
0: like in the corporate world back then. There was a huge reluctance to embrace positive leadership principles. Lots of people thought it would cost companies in the long term and really question its value. But bit by bit, inch by inch, the company culture evolved.
5: And I'd say for the last 10 years, what's happened is that the business model hmm. is based on purpose. Yes. It's no longer this compromise among these different groups or this there's there's still tension. But fundamentally, the constraints that we've placed on ourselves, both social and environmental, in which we say, no, we, we're not gonna do this. We're not gonna use conventionally grown cotton. Yeah. Um we want to be in factories that uh pay a living wage. Uh, we want to deal with a bank uh, hmm. that uh, uh, is minimizing its invo- involvement in fossil fuels. Those constraints have led to innovation, both in products and in business practices that then become the model that differentiates us from competitors that all of our stakeholders identify with, our customers, mm-hmm. our employees, our suppliers, the communities we're involved in. We've been telling the same story, developing it for a very long time, and we built, uh, we're sometimes afraid of this because we built a strong level of trust. Yeah. But that trust also enables the business to evolve. Trust is probably the
0: most important currency in society. And the fact is, we lack a lot of it. That's something that Paul Palmer the pharmacy of Unilever, said to me when I met him, and he's so right. We build trust in society, in our business, by committing together to the common good.
3: Well, I've always believed and I've always seen business as being a force for good and uh, that it could play an enormous role in in the development agenda if you want to or uh,
0: enhancing the basic human values that we need for society to function paul is an inspiration and to me and a leader with, with real courage his wake-up call happened in the, the way, 90s he told me when he moved to newcastle uh, to run the png UK can nourish businesses from, elders, from
3: there that's for the first time that i really saw the effects of uh, second generation unemployment shipbuilding steel coal had gone belly up And the only thing a 14 year old girl could get was pregnant, making their situations worse, obviously. We were the biggest employer there, so I felt a strong sense of of being part of making these communities function. And I always called that the moment that I moved sort of from being a half
0: person to a full person. In 2010, he came out with what was called the Unilever Sustainable Plan, which was completely revolutionary, setting very bold targets like decoupling growth from environmental impact, increasing overall social impact, and the targets he felt were needed to reestablish trust. We
3: made a decision to take responsibility of our total impact in the world, and we looked at our impact across our value chain, call it our total handprint instead of our footprint. That led us already done to targets of uh, totally decarbonizing or running our factories at zero waste or implementing the human rights uh, framework uh, that John Rogge had uh, put out. It's called the Rogge framework and many of the other things. But he faced so much pushback. People felt uncomfortable about it. The market uh, was not used to that. For many in the financial market, this was kind of a strange thing. We were all supposed to serve them and nobody else. And here is someone that says uh, he has another idea. He even tells them to put the money somewhere else if they don't
0: agree with it. And you even ended uh, actually reporting on, on the quarters, uh, Paul, which I know was a kind of a shock to the financial community as well.
3: Yes, because what you normally expect is when people do that, there must be bad news coming. In our case, there was no bad news coming, but I needed to put the right boundaries in place. You know, people felt uncomfortable about it, but it created a certain level of energy in the company. It made us an outside-in company because it really forced us to focus on the um, issues of society to address those. And the penny really dropped after a few years when we could show that our purpose-driven brands were actually growing faster and were more profitable. Brands like Boy or Hand soap, helping a child reach the age of five when... 4 million children die every year still of infectious diseases like diarrhea, or pneumonia, a brand like Domestos, a toilet bowl cleaner, trying to address the issues of open defecation. So all of these brands got targets around that of reaching 100 million, 200 million, or a billion people. And that was very motivating. That really created that strong sense of mission and and purpose that unlocked that energy that I
0: hadn't seen before. So now I'd like to shift gears, Paul and really talk about the human equation of net positive companies. What would be your top three piece of advice for a CEO stepping in, in a new role in 2022, in the way he, she starts her role?
3: What I would recommend to them first and foremost is unlock that purpose in, in your company. Try to find that broader responsibility that you need to have by taking responsibility of your total impact. Then um, once once you are able to implement that in the company, then try to enlarge that into your value chain at industry level and increasingly become part of the bigger transformations that society needs. Uh, Most importantly is be consistent in all you do if you want to gain that respect as a leader and that trust that you need to build ultimately the success of your company.
0: So that's all for this episode, Fox. I'm going to take a short break. But if you are new to the podcast, there are lots of great episodes to listen to. And for everybody else, I'll see you soon for season four. You've been listening to Positive Leadership Podcast with Jean-Philippe Courtois, JP. And if you have enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a comment or rating. Goodbye.